This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. And we are hearing today from Victor Vescovo. He is an explorer. He is an adventurer. He's an investor as well. As we've mentioned before, he's the very first person to climb Mount Everest, explore the bottom of the ocean, and also visit space. Now, his accolades are just so impressive, it's hard to even get through them all because he's achieved the Explorer's Grand Slam, which means that in addition to climbing the seven summits, he's reached the North and South Poles. He's also visited the deepest points of all of Earth's five oceans during his five deep expedition. This was around 2018, 2019. He has the world record for the individual who's visited the Challenger Deep the most. 15 dives to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Incredible, man. Yeah. He was also on a Blue Origin space flight last year. Yeah, he was. He's been recognized by Guinness World Records as the person who has covered the greatest vertical distance without leaving Earth's surface. So that's from the top of Mount Everest to the Challenger Deep. That's a total (laughs) vertical distance of 19,772 meters. Chris and I ended up sitting down with him and, you know, we wanted to start at the beginning. How do you set out to become an explorer? And as always, he had a very simple but poignant message. He said it all started when he got a bicycle a kid when he was seven years old. He'd go on these long explorations all over the city. And I quite like this because he said he was just driven by his curiosity yeah. to see what was on the other side of the hill. Exploration is curiosity in action, is what he the, said. Yeah, that was the line he gave yeah. us that stuck with me as well. Fascinating guy. I mean, we're going to unpack this actually over two parts because... He, what he gave us was absolutely gold, was it not? Yeah, it was. And he's a bit of a specialist in the bottom of the ocean. I did call him a master of the ocean. He said, nobody, no, 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 nobody's a master of the ocean. <laughs> he did not like that. Yeah, no, he didn't. Because he's, his point is, we know so little. Yeah, the stat that's often thrown about is we only know 80, or 20% of the ocean. 80% is unmapped and unexplored. That's roughly right. We've actually improved in the last five years. There's been a big effort to map the seafloor. My own team did almost one percentage of it over the four years we were exploring. So 25% roughly is now mapped to a pretty good resolution. But that still means 75% of the entire seafloor is pretty much completely unexplored. And when you consider that 70% of the world is ocean. Actually, the the average place on Earth is in the ocean at 4,000 meters. That's the average. It's not on land. So if you do that math, literally half of our planet Earth is still unexplored. When we developed this system that um, myself and Trident Submarines built that allowed us to go to any point on the seafloor, it literally was the problem of riches. It's like, well, shoot, where where do we want to go? Every place we went, no one had ever been there. I went to 17 deep ocean trenches, and 16 of them had never been visited at their bottom. Yeah, we found new species, and it was unusual not to find new species. I feel like that's the true definition of an explorer. It's not just somebody who's climbing the same mountains that everybody's climbing, but to go somewhere where you are the very first person there. Yeah, we're running out of places you can do that. Yeah, exactly. And the ocean is the place that you can still do that. You heard him say there are some 16 bottoms of of the ocean that he had visited that nobody else had ever been to before. One of the major things of many that he did was that he ended up going on the Five Deeps expedition, and that was involving him visiting the deepest points of all Earth's five oceans. So we asked him how he set about to do this. I think it all started back in about 2015 or 2016 when, you know, I was just reading different types of things and only two visits had ever been done to the bottom of the ocean, the so-called Challenger Deep, once in 1960 by the American 
two-person submersible uh, bathus scaf actually is what it's called and then uh, james cameron went in 2012 mm-hmm. and they both did one dive each and the submersibles never went down again because it's a very harsh environment and things get broken and all that type of thing and then it really hit me and i think richard branson pointed this out where they said well no one's ever gone to the bottom of all five of the world's oceans no one's ever been to the bottom of four of our world's oceans yet we had probably the technology to do it and so i was like well you know probably the most dangerous thing an explorer can say is you know okay how hard could it be <laughs> so i actually started doing the math on what would it, and it was a pretty big number i mean it was just eight figure number but i said you know what that's something worth doing technologically from an adventure standpoint from a scientific standpoint and so i set out on the path to build this submersible with some great partners including triton submarines and we got it done and to some degree my own amazement as well as many others in 2019 we completed the five deeps expedition where we went to the bottom of all first we had to find the bottom of all five oceans which is a whole separate issue involving mapping we dove them and then for the next three years we kept diving all over the world and it was an extraordinary adventure for four years now i'm on a little bit of a break you have got a a unique viewpoint victor you have done things that no one else has in a lot of ways there'll be a lot of our listeners right now and i can ask you about you know the cost the finance the the logistics of it all but really i guess the question that's probably on everyone's lips is through your very eyes what is it like descending some eleven thousand meters paint that vivid picture for us if you can i've been asked this question before and i I do feel exquisitely privileged because I've seen with my own eyes and felt with my own soul almost these extraordinarily intense places. And and I put it like, a, it's like a triangle actually. There are three and they're incredibly different. There's going to the bottom of the ocean, there's going into space, and then there's climbing Mount Everest. Okay. They're all three extremely different and yet they all kind of rhyme. I'll start with Climbing Everest. Climbing Everest is just a physical and mental and spiritual beatdown. It takes two months to climb Everest properly. It takes you know a month to get to base camp, and then you're going up and down, up and down as you're conditioning your body. You have a third of the oxygen you have at sea level when you get to the summit. You're basically you know dying when you get above eight thousand meters, and uh, you know if you make it, great. And but you're always in jeopardy. And it's just a a really intense physical experience. But when you get to the top, it's an amazing feeling. When you're going to the bottom of the ocean, it's very different. It's quiet. It's peaceful. You're surrounded by intense technology. You know the pressure outside is 16,000 pounds per square inch, which literally you would be dead if there was a catastrophic failure before you even realized something was wrong. And when you get to the bottom, you can only stay there for two or three hours. You can go into space and stay in space for months at a time. Not so the bottom of the ocean. It does not want you there, and you are on a hard time limit because you're going to run out of oxygen, and that pressure is going to find any weak spot eventually and not uh, allow you to go home. But it feels like you're at the pyramids. It's very ancient. It's Mm. just so old. When you're diving these deep ocean trenches, that's some of the oldest rock formations on the planet, and you're right there next to them. So it's very quiet and spiritual. And then there's going to space. That's like going to a rock concert. <laughs> that was, I went on Blue Origin's New Shepherd, and you know, it's a 15 minute ride straight up and straight down at Mach 3 going up, Mach 5 coming down. You know, you basically start off by strapping yourself into a 10 story bomb, lighting it off, 
screaming up. <laughs> then the booster ejects you and throws you into suborbital space, and now you're floating, looking down on the Earth with a yellow sun on a black sky and stars. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm floating and I'm in space, and you're tumbling and you're having pictures with your friends. And then it's you know, oh crap, I got to get in my crash seat because we're going to come screaming in at five Gs. Oh my God, where are the parachutes? Where are the parachutes? Where are the parachutes? Oh, there they are. Okay, good. We're not going to die. And then you get on the ground, you go like, what the heck just happened? That was awesome. I want to do that again. So I put, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek, but you can just hopefully through those brief descriptions, they're all incredibly different. Amazing listening to that back sonar. Yeah. And, you know, we heard about all three of the experiences in brief, right? And we'll go into some of those in more depth. But one of the things you asked him, Chris, was... Of all of those experiences, which one really spoke to him personally the most? And he said, listen, this is a personality thing. He said he would imagine space would be for the extroverts. He said it's intense as hell. Mm. And you'd think that, you know, for an extrovert, that might be, you know, we said it's like a rock concert, right? But he said he himself is a bit more reserved, a cerebral person. He loves chess, he said. So for him, it was something a little bit different. For me, it was actually climbing. I was a hardcore mountain climber for 25 years, and there is nothing like being out in the elements where the weather is beating you, you don't quite know what's going to happen, and it's, it's actually a lot, it's the most dangerous of the three, by far. And if you're not careful, you can get in a really bad way, but, it, but it's also a very raw experience. So for me, climbing was probably the most intense and spiritually satisfying endeavor. Can you explain, and I would imagine this is different for everyone, but you talk about that being a two-month endeavor. Yeah. You talk about the physical exertion. You talk about the mental load as well. You know, at every single second, one wrong step. I'm not over-egging this. You know it. No, one I took step. a wrong step on a mountain and almost got killed. You did? Yeah. That happened on Aconcagua, the highest mountain in South America. I took a wrong step, and I tumbled down a mountainside for a couple hundred feet and ended up partially paralyzed with a concussion, and I almost didn't get carried out. How did you get out of that situation? Because a lot of people don't get carried out. Well, it was pretty bad. I was with a team of three other climbers, and a storm was coming in, and they literally did not have the physical capability to carry me another 2,000 feet down to a shelter. So they were going to leave me there overnight and try and come back the next morning to hopefully I'd be okay, which I probably wasn't. But fortunately, a team of four French climbers saw the accident, and so the seven of them were able to tag team, carry, and drag me down to an emergency shelter, and I made it. I got helicoptered out the next day. What's going through your mind when you're sort of laying there? You said you're partially (laughs) paralyzed. What are the thoughts that are running through your head? There's discussions happening about leaving you overnight and coming back for you the next day. I mean, until you're actually then at base camp and you know you're sort of in good hands, what's happening in your brain? Well, that was a particularly strange situation because I also got a really bad concussion. So I couldn't speak and I had partial amnesia. So, But I could understand what they were saying but I couldn't respond to them. So they were literally like talking about me like they thought I was completely out of it, but I wasn't. So that was really unnerving. And then, But what, what it really felt like was I made a huge mistake. Why did I do this? I just wrecked my whole life to climb this big rock. Why did I do that? But it's just how we are. And, you know, I went back to two years later and climbed it. So it's, I just could not do that. How do you kind of reconcile with everyday tasks? Victor, I know that might be a strange question, but when you've had the highs, yep. when you've had the 
to endure as you have. You've yeah. you've had the euphoria of success in these amazing kind of snapshots in your life. How the heck do you do menial things on a day to day basis? It's very easy, and it's all part of a spectrum. I spent some of my 20s really studying Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion. So I guess in many respects, I grew up as an Episcopalian, but lately I consider myself more of a, a Zen Buddhist. And there's a great koan that was taught where, uh, you know, a pupil asked his master, you know, master, you know, what's the meaning or secret of life? He said, um, have you had dinner? The student said, yes. He said, have you washed your bowls? The student said, no, master, I haven't. He says, go wash your bowls. Now, the point of that koan in Buddhist teaching is the simple act of cleaning a bowl should have just as much reward and fascination and satisfaction for a human being as going into space. If you can live your life such that every action that you do is meaningful, you will have a very deep and rich life. You will never be dissatisfied or constantly hungry or unhappy because you'll be happy even with the most menial, simple things, as well as the most extreme things. You won't constantly be chasing that dragon, that intense high, because you're satisfied across the entire spectrum of experiences. To be clear there, that was balls. Yeah, Victor he wants did say that. to wash his balls. Yes. But, you know, you Correct. can wash everything, and that presumably has meaning yeah. as well. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we asked is how do you apply that? You know, when you talk about having as much appreci appreciation for eating your dinner and climbing a mountain and washing a bowl. Uh, and he said it's about mindfulness. His sort of philosophy is we all live in a teenage horror movie. None of us are making it out alive. And so he said when you have that kind of mentality, you don't necessarily get too wrapped up in the things that you feel are hard in life. Um, so it's just about perspective, I guess. Chris, you actually asked him about moments of clarity in all of these different experiences that he's had. When has he really felt sort of serene and pure clarity? I mean, he told us this is something that happens all the time. And then there are, you know, in the mountains, it's really easy, right? Because you're so exhausted and you're hungry, but it's cold, right? And you get up when it's, you know, beautiful stars, you can see the Milky Way, and you're literally putting your head down and you're climbing up a bloody mountain at like 26,000 feet. That's a very clarifying experience because that's all there is. There's no mortgage to pay. There's no take care of this errand or that errand. There's only one thing in your mind, and that is go up and survive. And, and, and so these experiences strip away all the mundanity that happens yeah. in our daily lives, and you get that clarity. That, that feeling of euphoria, I appreciate that feeling of euphoria is different for everyone, but at yeah. the top of Everest, how long are you there for? Two minutes? Three minutes? Well, we went up in a storm, so I was there 15 minutes, then we came down. Now, the good news about being kind of going up in a storm was no one else really was on the mountain. And you see these long lines, which are really dangerous. But we made a conscious decision. We had a strong team, and we could climb in those conditions. And so we said, okay, well, now we have a straight shot. And we made it. But when we got to the summit, you can only see about 100, 200 meters. And I was like, okay, this is really dangerous. Let's go down. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we talk about doing the seven summits, of course, Mount Everest gets a lot of attention. Right. But for you... It's not the most dangerous of the seven. No. Not the most dangerous. Was it the most spectacular? Does it deserve its place it's the most, as being, oh. you know, as kind of talked about, as coveted as, as it is? It's the most epic. Right. Because it's just Everest. Yeah. And it's so high. And, it's, and it's, it is actually very hard. You can't just walk up that thing. Denali, the highest in North America, is the biggest. There are four camps from base camp to summit on Everest. There are six on Denali. Because it's just 
bloody big. <laughs> the most dangerous is unusual. People won't get this, but it's Karsten's Pyramid in Papua New Guinea, the highest mountain on a non-continent. And the reason why it's so dangerous, there's a lot of rock climbing, some free climbing, and you are a long way from home. There's no medical attention. There's no quick evac like there is on Everest. If you get hurt, you're in a world of trouble. So it was very sketchy and very dangerous. And there are literally natives running around with bows and arrows and spears. It's like neo-prehistoric when you're just trying to get to the mountain, which takes a week. So there's that. The most beautiful was the highest point in Antarctica, the Vinson Massif, which was just shockingly gorgeous. A mountain in the middle of Antarctica, just bullet blue skies and crystal white snow and, you know, azure ice. That was just gorgeous. And then, uh, you know, and then you have others like Kilimanjaro, the most beautiful volcano in the world. So I just feel, again, so privileged. I get to see all these things and experience them directly. How much does this make you want to go mountain climbing? Absolutely get me on a plane. (laughs) <laughs> it makes me makes me want to go to the Scottish Highlands. I know all the places he's saying. I mean, Antarctica's it's a heck of a schlep. Yeah. Let's be honest. Which Give me a nice glen in yeah. Scotland. A nice Munro. Oh. How would you feel about going to some of the more remote ones? It's bite-sized. It's manageable, you know. Yeah. You can do you a Munro in a day and you feel like you've achieved something. Yeah, you can sure. you can walk up and you've you, you've had a really strenuous hike. You've reached a peak. You've got this incredible vista. You've got everything you'd want out of a hike, and then you go back down the very same day. I'm not poo-pooing glens and Munros in my native Scotland, Rob, but to think about that and then think about what this fellow has <laughs> Well, no, I just can't even conceive of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, we, it's amazing. But he's really had to earn it by all oh, those man sure. hours and all the training and, wow, well, the danger on that, involved. on that training, we're actually going to get to that. Um, you heard him there talking about the mountains, but what about the remote places like the poles? That was different, you know, the North and South Poles, because you're literally just you're, you're pulling a sled you're pulling all your gear behind you on skis and it is just this huge expanse and you feel like you're on another planet that's the most i've ever felt like i was on another planet because i was like living on another planet and it was like negative 40 degrees you're living in negative 40 for like a week and that just your skin gets thicker you, you just become inured to it you, you get tough but the funniest thing, when you get to the South Pole, there's this huge billboard about a mile or two away from the South Pole station, and it's facing the station. So you're approaching this billboard, and you can't see what's on the other side. And we're, like, asking our guy, what is that? What's on the other side? So when we skied around to the other side of it, the billboard said, like, do not go beyond this point. You will die. <laughs> okay, we've been out there for five days, I guess. I guess, you know, we're tough. But the North Pole is very different. Because that's actually more dangerous because there are polar bears and you're on ice that's moving and it's cracking. And if you go in the water and it's negative 30, negative 35, it's it's a serious life-threatening issue. We had drills we had to practice of how are we going to get someone out? How do we get their clothes off to get them warm? All that kind of thing. So that was – yeah, we carried a shotgun when we did North Pole because of the bears. We had a funny incident. So we finally got to the North Pole, which was funny because the ice is constantly moving. So we literally ditched our packs and we're running around like chickens with the GPS. Wait, wait, it's over there. Oh, wait, we're moved. Oh, it's over there. And so for like for 10 minutes, we're trying to get to the North Pole because it kept moving under us. Finally, we got there. Get a picture, get a picture. And then we call the radio saying, hey, we made it. Can you get the helicopter to come pick us up? It's the Russians. And they said, no, you know, we have had four flights today. We are, we are timed out. We, yeah, we come get you tomorrow. We're like, are you serious? He said, yes, we get you tomorrow. It's a good, good weather, no problem. And we're like, okay, so we camped overnight and spent the night at the North Pole. 
water still oh, in our eyes. Wow. Oh, it's amazing. And they, they did come get us. They, I, they, I give the Russians credit they, for that. Give them credit there. <laughs> the, the one thing we haven't discussed, this is a serious question. Your regime, your physical regime, you know, we talk nutrition, but you're obviously a fit guy, Victor, to do all of this. I mean, are, are you in the gym? Are you, are yeah, you yeah. conscious? Yeah, I've been that way since I was in high school. I ran track and it's just a habit. It's a it's a habit I develop where I work out at least every other day and I run. You know, I still I'm 57. I run six miles every other day, pretty much. I do weightlifting. I eat right. I don't overeat. I can't remember the last time I had dessert, but I try and eat healthy. But it's just it's so easy to overindulge yourself in the modern society, and you just have to have self discipline. I've been often asked, you know, what you know when people live their lives, what's the most important thing? I said the most important quality I think any human being can ever have is self-discipline. Yeah. If you can control yourself, if you can control your mind, you can control so much else. You can control what your body's going to do. You can control your fear. The essence is controlling your mind. And if you don't control your mind, you're not going to be able to control anything else in your life. You're going to be a, just a complete victim to your desires and compulsions. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised that Chris didn't actually compare his physique to Jeff Bezos's because presumably they know each other. They're both part of this exclusive Explorers Club yeah, based yeah. out of New York. Right. Yeah. So I mean, we didn't ask, but I presume he knows Listen, Jeff Bezos. V- Victor was hiding himself away in a lovely uh, suit, so he was. Uh, I wasn't going to go there, Sons. But I mean, listen, the fact that he has achieved all that he has—an illuminating individual. Victor Vascovo is. Um, We wanted to focus specifically now on the depths of the oceans, because what do you see down there? What can you see? What does it feel like to descend completely into that darkness, into the deep unknown? And also, what kind of marine life did he come across? When you dive really deep, when you get down to like a thousand meters, it is dark. You can't see anything. When you get below 6,000 meters, The laws of physics dictate no photons can get down that deep. They won't penetrate. So when you're below 6,000 meters, which is really, really deep, and you're looking out the portals and you turn off the lights, that is literally the blackest black that your mind can register because there are no photons out there. Not a single one. And the human eye can detect a single photon. So it was really weird to do that. Now, to answer your question, it's really fun. On the descent, there are typical uh, depths, maybe like 800 meters, sometimes 1,200 meters, where I would turn off all the lights in the submarine and outside the submarine. So the submarine was dark. And then all at once, I would blast all the lights and then immediately turn them off. And then what you see, it's like lightning in the ocean, the bioluminescence of all the creatures. It's like they're talking back at you. In fact, bioluminescence mathematically is the most common form of communication on planet Earth because that's how creatures in the ocean usually communicate with one another and they are the largest form of life on Earth. So it was, I I joked that it was like, you know, here's this strange white thing in the ocean and it's blasting out, hey! And they're all going back going, hey! And then you respond, hey, hey. Hey, hey. (laughs) That's the conversations I had in the ocean with the creatures down there. But we also saw some extraordinary life forms. We found a new species in the Indian Ocean. We were in a deep ocean trench, and I'll never forget. It was a great experience. Uh, We filmed this thing with one of our remote drop cameras, and it was on the big screen in our science lab on our ship. And this thing floated by. It looked like sort of like a jellyfish, but it had a big cable coming off the back of it. It was just bizarre looking. And I turned to my chief scientist, who's actually from Scotland, and he... He said, uh, Loch Ness Monster exists. He said something a little more colorful. I said, Dr. Jameson, what is that? 
and he said I am got effing clue. He actually used the real word, and so I said, "Okay, well that that's cool." So we we discovered so many different species, collected a lot of things, and uh, yeah, it was great. Whoa. In terms of the other things that you've seen, you've done a lot of shipwrecks that you've gone and explored. Yeah. One of them, of course, was the Titanic, which I understand was quite dangerous to, to yeah. actually go down there. I've told people the most dangerous dive I ever did was actually a, I did a solo dive on the Titanic, which had never done been done before. Now I know why. Uh, but yeah, that was dangerous because the currents are really strong. There's a lot of entrapment hazards because of the steel beams and girders and cables. That's the scary thing for a submersible is getting entangled because you can't go outside and untangle yourself. You can get trapped. And when the current, when you combine that with a strong current in a big wreck, it's really unpredictable and it's dangerous. And, it, and I was the only one in the sub and there was only one set of eyes. So I'm inside the sub looking at the sonar, looking at my instruments, but I have to be looking outside for cables and stuff. So I went, okay, this is, this is not cool. So you need two sets of eyes at least in the submarine when you dive the Titanic, which I learned and I will not do that again. Was it worth it? The Titanic, the wreck of the Titanic. It, it, I mean, it's, it, it's a legendary. Yeah. I, I say that with some degree of reservation because it is an iconic wreck. It has so much history to it. But, wow, people just lose their minds over that wreck. And it's a wreck. And, yeah, it's an important wreck, but it, it's not a religious experience. It wasn't for me, and it wasn't for the other people that I dove with down to it. I mean, it was really interesting, and it's big. That's the thing that really struck me was it's big. <laughs> so when I got to it, I didn't realize how big it was. I was thought I was looking at you know the blackness of the ocean. I was like going, where's the wreck? It's, I've got all this sonar readings. Where? Oh, hell, that's right in front of me. <laughs> it, was the, it was the black side yeah. of the ship. And then I went up, and I went, oh, wow, okay, here's the wreck. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's an interesting wreck, but there's so much drama, and people get really emotional about yeah. it, and I really wonder if it's worth it. And then there's a big debate, you know, should people continue going down there? Because, you know, it's a grave site. There aren't bodies there. It's just there's nothing left, but, you know, it's just they're deteriorating. Now, of course, when you talk about the Titanic and how excited people get about it, we had to ask Victor about OceanGate because he is really one of the foremost preeminent experts when it comes to these kinds of submersibles. You know, he was responsible when we talk about him going down to the Challenger Deep and to the depths of all the five oceans. He has his own submersible called Limiting Factor that he designed with a company. So he really is an expert in this matter. And it turns out he had a really personal connection yeah. to the OceanGate tragedy that happens, especially in those early days. And we didn't quite know what had happened. And we were getting those initial news reports. What was his initial reaction when we had heard that it had gone missing? That's why I'm here in Dubai. Tomorrow I'm going to the funeral of my friend, Hamish Harding, who is one of the passengers on that submersible. He and I dove to the bottom of Challenger Deep together. We actually hold a record for the longest amount of time at the bottom of the Challenger Deep, and we went into space together. We're the only two-person team ever to go to the bottom of the ocean and go into space. And then he died on the Titan, and I'm here for his funeral tomorrow. So, and I know his family, you know, his son was on the ship with me, and um, the night that they went missing, the first I heard of the Titan situation was I got a call from his wife. And she called me, woke me up. It was one in the morning in Texas. And she said, hey, Victor, they've lost contact with the sub. This is what OceanGate is telling me. What do you think? And I'm telling you straight up, I, I was, well, if what you're telling me, even the basics, they're, they're not coming back. 
you, you don't come back wounded from 4,000 meters. Yeah. You come back or you don't come back at all. And if you lose comms, there's usually a warning if it's something not that serious. But if it's sudden and it's catastrophic, you're not coming back. And I had to be straight with her, and I told her that. And I said, you need to be prepared for, for this, but I'm not going to just tell you what you may want to hear. And... You know, that was that. So so when we had this whole week where they thought they heard banging noises, anyone that had been in the submersible community, and there was you know, a group of us that were coordinating the information flow that we were getting, we were going, this just doesn't sound right. This just, this just doesn't make sense. And we knew enough about that, unfortunately, flawed design that we were certain that it had imploded. And that's, of course, what happened. And, and just on that, Victor, and I don't want to labor on this, and it is important to point out to you, we've had Hamish on the show before. No, and we were. You know, we were as as devastated as anyone. That news coming through the whole world united in, in just devastation at yeah. what had transpired. There's, there was a lot of in the aftermath. I felt anyway, and I'm not part of the community, there was an awful lot of I told you so's. There was this notion that everyone yeah. had questioned that particular... Well, I was one of them. Submersible. Yeah, I told Hamish not to get in the sub. You did? Oh, absolutely. We spent like 14 hours in a sub, you know, and he said, I really want to go to Titanic. Are you going to go there? And I went, well, no, this submarines in the Pacific and I have no intention of diving Titanic again. So Ocean Gate was the only game in town. And Hamish really, really wanted to go see the Titanic. And it had made a couple of successful dives and so I think that lulled people into a false sense of security but really it just comes down to he thought it was safe enough and it wasn't. And there were a lot of us that were saying it's a, it's a fundamentally flawed design and it's not a question of if it will fail but when. I, I, the, the best example I can say is the submarine that we designed and constructed for my submersible, the pressure capsule for two people was a sphere. Yeah. Spheres get stronger under pressure. Mm. Cylinders do not. That weak point at the junction between the caps is going to be where it fails. And it wasn't – mine was one material. It was titanium. Theirs was three titanium end caps with epoxy and carbon fiber, three dissimilar materials under repeated loads – you know, relaxing, compressing, relaxing with a non-spherical shape. Any mechanical engineer worth his salt will tell you that's not a good recipe for success. Such a tragic story. And also hearing it there, the way that he paints it, you yeah. wonder how could it even gotten that far? That's it. You know, when, as he's saying, any engineer could tell you that's not the way to do this. It's, it. it's amazing that they did even attempt it really in the first place. Now, he did mention that he was on a Blue Origin space flight with Hamish. So we asked him a little bit about what that was like, because we haven't really touched yet with Victor on what it's like to go out into space. He did mention to us last week that it's like a rock concert. Yeah. That's right. You know, he described all the different explorations he's had. And he said, you know, space happens so fast. It's so loud. And it's over just like that. So what was it like for him to blast off to the edge of the atmosphere and then look down on Earth? Well, the most pronounced thing that happened was I got to experience what many call the overview effect, which is a deep, almost spiritual effect that happens when you see the Earth from space. And I think it affects different people differently. You know, some people get extremely emotional, some people not as much, but most people, I think, fall in the middle. And what it means is when you're up there and you're looking down on the Earth, you see no boundaries, and you're seeing an extremely thin, sharp blue line of our atmosphere, and you look at it as if wow, that is all that is keeping us from dying in a vacuum. And then you look back down at the Earth and you're going, why is it that we are floating in this beautiful spacecraft, looking at this beautiful world, and yet knowing below us there are people in trenches killing each other with bayonets? How can we be so awful to one another? And that's why I think when there's a lot of criticism about 
people spending, you know, a million dollars or whatever it is to go up into space. It's a bunch of rich people, you know, getting their jollies when they should be spending that money doing something else. I think there are two points. One, the money that we spend on space travel is going to make it cheaper, faster, more reliable, just like the early days of aviation. But I also think more importantly, we need to get the cost of space access down so that more people can go into space and experience the overview effect. Because I think the more people that can influence large amounts of people like politicians, like artists, like writers, and feel this, that it would have a positive effect on humanity. And so I'm a very strong proponent now as someone who has experienced this to get more people into space as quickly as possible. And how do you experience it? Because it must happen. Does it happen all at once? Does it just sort of hit you like a punch, all of this? Or does it come in waves? That's a good point. It's almost like a a twin punch. The first is when you're actually in the rocket ship and then you're in zero G. Your mind is having a hard time adjusting to what is happening to you. I mean, you're in zero G looking down at the earth, seeing a yellow sun on a black background. Your mind can't quickly process that. But after about 20 or 30 seconds, it sort of kind of is used to it. And that's when you really appreciate the stark, incredible beauty of what you're seeing. Seeing the earth in daylight, but with stars, and it's just amazingly beautiful. When you get back down, you're processing it for days and weeks, and then it, it does just kind of like a deep bass sound kind of in your soul. It's just there that it wasn't there before. And so it stays with you. It oh, doesn't absolutely. Go away. No, it stays with you. It stayed with me. And I think it stays with most people that go up. At least that's my experience. Uh, and not to be too OTT, but has your outlook in life and, and uh, those around you, has it changed from that experience? Yes, in a subtle way. It's not yeah. like all of a sudden I'm going to become a monk or <laughs> do this, that, or the other. But it definitely puts a spin on how you look at things. And I'm hoping that as more people go into space, they would have that effect and they would want to make the world an even better place and not be so tenacious and hateful and hurtful about silly things. I could listen to that bloke all day. Yeah. Yeah, you and I had a really hard time letting him leave the yeah, studio. Yeah, <laughs> I think I said my famous last question, yeah. Victor, about 17 times. Yeah. I mean, he is just listening yeah. to him there. I mean, honestly, I'm loving it. We've heard so much from him about, you know, his thoughts on the Ocean Gate tragedy, about what it's like to visit the Titanic, about going to the depths of the ocean. We, we talked about what drives him, and he said it's the fact that he's acutely aware of his limited time on yeah. Earth. I think as he put it... Last time, you know, uh, we're all basically in a teenage horror film. None of us are getting out alive. No. You know, and so that was kind of his framing. And that's kind of one of the things he says drives him is just being really aware of that fact. So what is he looking what is he looking at at the moment? What's his next challenge? A challenge? I have like seven (laughs) that I'm actually actively working on. I mean, I can just go through the list of them. I mean, uh, I'm already thinking about the design and construction of a next generation submersible that would be even better than the one that we used from 2018 to 2022. There were so many things on our expedition that we found out that we could make better. I'm looking at uh, potentially designing and building an aircraft that could set uh, a new record in terms of altitude with certain systems, stuff like that. I'm an investor, and I'm on the board of advisors of Colossal Biosciences, which is a startup company that most people have heard about because it wants to de-extinct the woolly mammoth and the dodo bird (laughs) and the Tasmanian tiger, all those other things. So I'm involved in that. I'm the CEO of a biotechnology startup, and we're trying to develop a new form of therapy that can actually attack diseases that are invulnerable because they take refuge in the human nervous system. So I'm working on that. So there are a lot of things that keep me excited that hopefully can contribute to other people's well-being and adventures. 
I mean, obviously, it's the headline grabber and all of that, and, and that's not to take away anything of the other industries and, and things that you're working on, but you're working to bring back the woolly mammoth. Yeah. No, no, for goodness sake, Victor. You probably get asked this a, a million times, but, I mean, where are we at? Legitimately, where are we at on that kind of adventure, if I can call it that, on that quest? We expect to de-extinct our first animal in the next year. In the next 12 yeah, months? The, yeah, the internet's going to break when that happens. Do we know which one? Which no, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and here I was thinking we had built up such a rapport it's that I could the sneak mammoth. that one in. It's not the mammoth. But legitimately, in the next 12 months. Yeah, that's our plan, and we're on that track. I'm sure people have also questioned as well, do we need to do this? Is this ah, smart to do? It's a great question. About a third of the board of the colossal biosciences are bioethicists in the issue. There's, this is not Jurassic Park. These are species that were killed off by man or natural calamity, like in the last, you know, 50,000 years. So these are near-term. That, that, that's really the easy ones because you need a pure DNA strand. Otherwise, it's really hard to do. Most dinosaur DNA is all corrupted, and it's really hard to replicate. But the issue is we think we need this in the human being's toolbox. If we extinct species, and we're doing it at an incredibly rapid clip right now, we should have the ability, if we made a mistake, if we killed off a species that we really, really need for our survival or the survival of the biome, we should have the capability to bring it back. And, you know, we'll have to just be really careful with it. Bringing back the dodo bird was kind of interesting because we decided on the dodo bird because it can't escape. <laughs> It can't fly away and lose track of it. A dodo bird can't go very far. So that's... We've all learned from Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah all yeah. of us. <laughs> yeah. What would be your advice to, to the, you know, the, the curiously kind of minded of us all? And we've all got curiosities, but from the life that you've led, and we've literally just scratched the surface. I appreciate time is of the essence, but what would your advice be to anyone? And, and I'm probably talking to the kids out there in the cars with mum and dad who... Get out of the car. Get, you, must, <laughs> you, you must act on it. You can't just be curious, although that's a wonderful trait because then you'll read in your experience through, you know, second hand. But if you really want to have a rich life, if you really want to contribute to the world in general, you need to get out of the car, get off the couch, even do simple things. Go to a different place you've never been before. Be curious and keep pushing yourself. But do it in a measured and in a careful and thoughtful way. Victor Vescovo, easily Solar Rapani, one of my favorite guests on yeah, scripts. We had a great time listening to him. You have a little theory that the animal, he wouldn't tell us which animal, extinct animal, they're going to bring back. Well, sitting back to it there, I think he's let it slip. I think it's the dodo bird. Yeah, no, I think it's some kind of insect. You think? Uh, yeah, they're going to start small. I don't know. Like, he said it's going to break the internet. Yeah. So I'm with I'm with Chris. I think it might be uh, it's the dodo break bird. Because the, the way he said bringing yeah. back the C dodo bird correct. makes sense because it can't fly. And he did tell us off air, I'm not going to do it because I want Victor back on the show. Wooly Mammoth. We asked him as we're walking out the building and he threw up some fingers to tell us how many it will be. I'm not going to reveal that because I felt that he was telling us that in confidence. Oh, really? but, um, <laughs> Chris is now on the internal team exactly. of the Woolly Mammoth Bring It Back campaign. Watch this space. Uh, I think it's, well, what, where do we even start on the ethics of that? I'm glad there are ethical members on his board. Yes, but, you know, let's. why don't we stop wiping species out before we then kind of resuscitate them back into life and like Frankenstein's th monster? There we have it, Sir David Attenborough, mini version there. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 